Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast for part two of our Euro coverage, our Euro discussion, bringing you all things Euro 2020, Euro 2021, the Euro 2020s at this tournament. We just wrapped up watching France versus Hungary, and we will get on to that match amongst many other things at this tournament. We're obviously going to discuss the fallout from England, Scotland. We're going to talk about Italy rampaging their way through the group stages. We're going to talk about Kevin De Bruyne and a glorious Belgium comeback in Copenhagen. Other other topics such as the Netherlands, maybe who hasn't impressed us at this tournament. And we are going to wrap things up with a discussion of the uh, the the comical, <laughs> the comedic board management uh, and managerial appointments or lack thereof at Tottenham. Hotspur. Uh, but before we do that, I am joined by a man who did not need to move any Coca-Cola bottles in order to join us on this podcast. It is Nathan Strauss. Indeed. The only thing I'd be moving is any non-polar seltzer out of the way, because as you know, I have an exclusive deal with them. So anyways, yeah, polar sponsor. If you want to, if you're polar seltzer, if you want to get on board and sponsor Corner Kick, we'd be all ears. Drop us a line at, at officialcornerkick at gmail.com. I think we could do some great ad reads. Oh, we just need some sponsors. Our ad reads would be Manscaped. <laughs> no, Manscaped or Roman. I think we, no, wait, we could here's, it, wait, here's an idea. What if we just start doing ad reads? <laughs> we could. We could like make we up could, products. We'll will it into no, existence. No, 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 no. Use do real products. Like, what if we just started <laughs> doing ads? This, this podcast brought to you by Best Buy. <laughs> By Circuit City, and that the voice you the voice that you hear telling us to do ad reads for free is the one and only Caleb Rhodes. Hello, welcome. Anyways, boys, we have a lot of things to cover on this podcast. We are almost done with match day two of the Euros. Uh, we are currently watching Portugal versus Germany in real time as we're recording this podcast. So if you hear any interruptions, any you know maybe screams of jubilation, disappointment, or otherwise. That is because something is probably going on in the Portugal and Germany game, and we will update you if, if you know, anything transpires. But uh, well, and, you, and, and you'll, know it because, you'll know it because I'll react about 30 seconds after because that's how far behind my streams are. No, right. I was about to say, who, what, what are our timestamps right now? I'm 1042. I'm 1055. Okay, 10, Nathan. 1017. <laughs> 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 Nathan is a whole timeline behind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And wait, who who are we rooting for in this game? I'm rooting for Portugal. I, I, I'm rooting for Portugal. I feel like I have to root for Portugal, but I really wish the worst on both of these teams. <laughs> okay. So. Well, we'll, well, while I mean, while this Group F game is being played before our eyes, let's talk about the Group F game that just wrapped up. It was a 1-1 draw, an inexplicable 1-1 draw between Hungary and France, France, who had claimed three points in Munich with a pretty decent performance against Germany, and Hungary, who also had a fairly decent performance, but then just unraveled at the death against Portugal to lose 3-0. Uh, they're playing this game in a packed arena in Budapest. It was an incredible atmosphere, and somehow, against all odds, with 35% possession and only four touches inside the France box in the entire game, Hungary managed to pull out a draw. It was a Viola goal in the first half, which gave them a point in this game. And Antoine Griezmann equalizer in the 67th minute was not enough for the French national team to claim all three points. Caleb, this is a real upset for a France team that I think many expected to just roll over this Hungary team. What lessons can you take from this game and, and what should Deschamps think about going forward as he needs to take on Portugal in order to seal progression into the knockout stages. So I think there are a few takeaways. One is that the issue is not that France aren't generating chances. It's just that their finishing has been 
pretty woeful, this tournament. I mean, their goals right now, they have two in two games, an own goal, and then Griezmann's kind of, you know, rebound hit. But I think it's getting to the point where I would consider potentially dropping Benzema, which I didn't think I would say, and bringing in Giroud. Um, it's also getting to the point where maybe they should switch to a 4-2-3-1 drop Rabiot from the midfield and just have the Conte and Pogba double pivot. I, I will say one note, though, and I'm not really sure how much bearing this has. Historically, Hungary have matched up pretty well with France. I know that's not super predictive, but especially in Budapest, especially with so many fans, it's not totally surprising that Hungary were able to take their chance. But I'm not super concerned about France yet because they still have a lot of options and they still create a lot of chances. And at some point, they're going to start burying them. I thought against Germany, France looked the best when they were playing on the counter. Sort of similar to how they looked in the knockout stages in the 2018 World Cup. And I'm just not sure that you need three out-and-out center forwards or quote-unquote center forwards in your lineup if that's going to be how you're generating your chances, I think it might be. Oh, it's Ronaldo. It's 1-0 to Portugal. What? I'm at 13.56 and Germany's taking a corner in, their, in the <laughs> Portugal half. <laughs> oh, it's, and, it's, and it's Jota. Jota passing to Ronaldo. Did you see that whole beef? Yep. People are like they're going to drop Jota because he doesn't pass to Ronaldo. But but today he did. Well, the beef has been squashed. It is a brilliant counterattack here from Portugal. Oh, Ronaldo, it's 1-0. <laughs> Nathan, as a rule, you're not allowed to react like that when you know it's coming. 40 seconds no, later. I know. I No, I know. I was. It was the bit. It was, it was for the bit. It was the bit. Fair enough. And it's a beautiful enough. square ball from Diogo Jota with the outside of his foot, and it is a tap-in for Cristiano Ronaldo at the back post. It is 1-0 to Portugal. Portugal currently through to the knockout stages at the top of this group as well, currently fans. But Nathan, continue. Well, as I was saying, I just don't think you need to play three strikers in Mbappe, Griezmann, and Benzema in order to play on the counter like this. So... Whether it's going to a 4-2-3-1 and throwing in someone like Thomas Lemar or Usman Dembele, if he's fit, he did have to come off injured uh, late on in this one. Um, I don't know. I would like to see them get a little wider, especially because Mbappe can basically make the same kind of run that makes him so effective from any position in the front three. And he can also drift around a little bit as well. So I would say that they should pick one of Griezmann or Benzema, and I would go with Griezmann at this point. Um, and then try and build a different system based off of that. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with you guys. I think the Dembele change, even though I'm not the biggest Dembele fan, I think it really helped unlock this French team. It helped them give them another option. I think the way that Hungary were just forcing Benzema and Mbappe to play really, really narrow at the top it just was not helpful. And there was just, there, I think you're right, Caleb, there was an air of just France being a little frustrated up against Hungary again. I think... There was a point in this game where Mbappe has like a clean header and he just misses it wide. And I was like, oh, he might be in like a little bit of trouble here. This might just be like an off day for the French. Going wider would really, really help them, Nathan. I almost think that you drop Rabio. You, you might keep Benzema against Portugal just to see how it works, you know, just to finish out the group stage. I would honestly, I would like to see if he's fit, you know, that that is a big if. Um, Thomas Lamar starts in place of Rabio, just to have that attacking midfielder to link up the play between Benzema and Pogba and Conte. And, you know, I think you can you can live with Mbappe and Griezmann playing in wider roles than they are right now. I don't think to, they need to be as fixed into this diamond formation as they currently are. And I think it'll help them, you know, later in the tournament when the game starts to open up way more against more quality opposition than Hungary, just to give them, you know, a little bit more freedom, a little bit more dimension and to attack from, you know, every angle instead of just trying to, instead of Pogba and Conte really just trying to drive up through the middle and find balls to attackers right in front of them, I think that'd be way more helpful. I don't think this is like a nightmare scenario for the French by any means. I think, you know, you're going to have, you know, favorites tend to have one of these games in every single tournament. You know, you think about in the World Cup when Switzerland beat Spain, you know, these games tend to happen occasionally. Uh, if, you know, they go out and... They, they lose to Portugal, that is a concern, and they need to be on their toes 
for that game and they'll still need to put in a performance against Portugal, but I'm not super worried as of yet. Any any word for the Hungarian team? Well, I started off the day thinking, oh, maybe this Hungary team is like the plucky upstarts who are worthy of like our support as underdogs. And it took about three minutes of scrolling on Twitter to learn that they are, in fact, largely um, uh, fascists when it comes to their supporters. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, so maybe not the the feel-good story that we would have hoped for um, in a group full of upstart or a group full of favorites. Um, But I guess credit to them for working a draw. I mean, I thought they played pretty well for 80 minutes or so against Portugal as well. Um, but yeah, this Hungary team, especially without Shabashlai, just doesn't really have it, doesn't really have enough attacking impetus to, to make a real impact. But who knows, you know, this could be a foundation for them, at least going forward and qualifying and whatnot. Uh, let's talk about the big game from yesterday. I think one of the marquee games of the group stage, it was England against Scotland at Wembley. It is the oldest international fixture in international football. And it was kind of a an affair that that flattered to deceive at times. I think a lot of people were up for this game. I think a lot of people were excited for this game. But it kind of it make no mistake, this is a brilliant it was a brilliant performance by Scotland. Some excellent defending and tactic and tactics on display from Steve Clark and the Scottish national team. And I think they did everything they needed to do in this game, apart from scoring a goal. However, I think looking back on this game, this is going to be like the first real signs of frustration and Portugal again. Oh, anyways, this is going to be the first real signs of of frustration for Gareth Southgate, who I don't think used his bench properly. I don't think got the starting 11 right. And this is a really, really troubling nil-nil draw for England in front of their home fans against one of their bitter rivals, Nathan. This game was, it wasn't bad because there were chances. England, I just don't know why they were playing the 4-2-3-1 with two defensive midfielders against a Scotland team that in the last two years has basically exclusively played, you know, three slash five at the back with two defensive midfielders. So they knew they were going to be going up against a seven person low block. And I don't get why they wouldn't, play someone like Grealish who clearly is fit and made a huge difference or even someone like Sancho who can cut in from one of the wings um, to try and make some inroads. I thought they looked very, very stale. I, I thought Reese James also looked particularly bad. I think Kieran Tierney kind of manhandled him at times. Reese James just um, looked really tired. He looked like yeah. he arrived to camp late. And I think you can say the same for Phil Foden. I think Phil Foden is better, but I think Foden still, you could tell like he kind of gassed out in the second half a little bit. Exactly. And so that's one of the, I mean, I would have just given a little bit more rotation in this team, knowing that Scotland is a defensive team. They could have taken a bit more risks with the personnel that they played up top. I don't think Southgate got it right at all. Um, And again, it it doesn't really matter unless England, you know, massively screw up later on in this tournament. I mean, they still have, they still have, um, if they get destroyed by the Czech Republic um, and Croatia beats Scotland, but, I mean, it doesn't really matter. But again, I would have liked to see Southgate manage this game a little bit better and remember that he actually does have five subs to use in this international tournament. It's kind of embarrassing that England can have such a good team and play so poorly and be so devoid of ideas and creation, etc. And I think, as we talked about before the tournament, a lot of this is due to Southgate's choices, like pretty directly. Like, what does Jaden Sancho need to do? I mean, the trend line suggests he'll get off the bench next game. I mean, you go from being left out of the squad inexplicably to being on the bench. But he needs to shake things up. I think Harry Kane said that, you know, he doesn't think he's undroppable. And I think it's time to potentially drop that entire front three and try something new for the next game. Well, I think because. Because this current setup is not going to get them past a France, a Portugal, a Germany, a Hungary, frankly, in in the next round. Damn. And so they have one more chance to to figure things out. I'll give him credit for playing a left back this time. Like, good on you. But also, I think that's like 
the minimum. Like it doesn't require a soccer genius to put a left-footed player at left back. And so I think Gareth Southgate, for whatever reason, is like space jamming his own side. And I don't understand. <laughs> That's another movie that could potentially sponsor us. Um, so Coming out July 15th, LeBron James. And, <laughs> LeBron and James. Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Caleb Rhodes. Space Jam, a new legacy. I wouldn't go so far to say as they all need to be dropped. I think Harry Kane was poor. Don't get me wrong. But I think sometimes Harry Kane can only be as good as the service that's provided to him. And I don't think the service that was provided to him is very good. The worrying stat, though, was that Harry Kane is just not getting any touches inside the box. At halftime, he had less touches in the game than both goalkeepers, which is a really troubling stat for England when you talk about, you know, creativity and progressive passing and get the, getting the ball up to who, who I think is probably their best player. Sterling was pretty poor. I thought he had a decent showing against Croatia. This was kind of the regression to the mean on his season, if you want to call it that. I think the real thing for England, Nathan, and you kind of pinpointed this, is that England are just so conservative when they absolutely do not need to be. And Gareth Southgate came out after the game saying that, you know, England weren't chasing the game, but they also have to, quote unquote, manage the tournament. And my response to Southgate is, bro, you're playing Scotland, who you man for man, you have far more quality than in front of your home supporters, too. And like, there's absolutely no excuse for you to be playing a conservative brand of football in a massive rivalry game in which you are ostensibly the far better team. Yeah, England were minus 350 favorites in this one going up against Scotland who were plus 800. So it was a truly massive, um, you know, the disparity in the quality between these two teams is massive. And so there really isn't an excuse for England to play, you know, three attacking players in a lineup of 11 against a team that's so defensive. So we'll see if they can make amends against the Czech Republic who currently lead the group um, in their last group stage game, which I believe is this coming Wednesday. Caleb, I just want to, before we move on from England, I just think the, the Sancho point is really fascinating because Rafa Honigstein, who's like the Bundesliga writer for The Athletic, wrote something about how like Sancho is paying the the Bundesliga tax, which is like a player who's like playing in a foreign league, who's doing really well, but like doesn't, isn't played by like the domestic national team coach just purely because like they're not super familiar with him. I, I'm not, I'm not sure how true that is. Like I'm not, you know, inside gareth southgate's england camp or his thought process or anything but like could that be something that could be factoring into why you know someone as prolific as sancho is not even really getting a look in i don't really think so because there are i mean like jude bellingham started one of the the tune-up games and i think it's more that southgate just isn't using any of his subs really like yes he's using jack Grealish and marcus rashford that play in the premier league but i think the bigger issue is southgate is proving to be like pretty undynamic and rather inflexible and not taking advantage of the resources that he have. And I think it's it's hard to say whether it's like because Jaden Sancho plays in the Bundesliga that that's so. Um, but, you know, that might be a little bit, but I don't think that's the main reason. Before we move on, I just want to shout out Scotland. I thought they were incredible in this game, especially considering, you know, the players at their disposal. I think Grant Hanley was the only real center back that they played. He played alongside Kieran Tierney and Scott McTominay, who by no means are center defenders, even though Kieran Tierney has played there. I thought he was excellent, going to be featuring back in the Premier League this season with Norwich. I thought Andy Robertson had an incredible game, both defensively and attacking-wise. And I thought Shea Adams, tactically, was really, really, really good in this game. He completely shut out Declan Rice made it so that Calvin Phillips kind of had to play on his own in midfield, really combined really well by dropping in deep with the midfield. Lyndon Dykes, who is a striker from the championship uh, at, with QPR, you know, not the greatest goal scorer, all-around player in the world. I think he looked really, really good when Chai Adams was up in support with him in the attack. So I thought, like, those players for Scotland, and you could see it at the end of the game, you know, the way that they were kind of celebrating getting a draw from this. They were up for, and it's cliche to say this, but like they were up for it and had a game plan way more so 
then I think this conservative England team is going to have to go back to the drawing board, as we've said. If you're looking for the land of chocolate and beautiful fountains, we can go to Belgium, where I thought that Belgium might have actually ended up losing this game. The first half, they were placed, they were facing Denmark in their first full game since the Christian Eriksen incident, and he has now been discharged from the hospital, which is which is great news and certainly sending him our best wishes. But uh, Denmark got off to the game basically on as much of a front foot as possible. Yusuf Paulsen scored in about a minute and a half after Jason Denayer, who was recently quoted about asking for massive wages from Lyon, uh, misplaced a back pass, and uh, Pierre-Emile Hoiberg picked it up and found Paulsen for the 1-0. But De Bruyne came on at halftime for Belgium and immediately provided the spark. He assisted Torgon Hazard in about 10 minutes, and then he ended up scoring the winner uh, later on in this one. Belgium look very much like contenders right now. They're, they've picked up two wins from two. And I think I have no criticisms whatsoever for Denmark. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's even fair to levy any sort of critiques of them. But we can certainly look at this game in the context of the resiliency that Belgium showed and sort of how they grinded out a result of their own. First off, Denmark honestly bossed most of the game. Like, Belgium only had, like, five or six shots. Denmark had, like, 21. So Denmark seemed, you know, in a complete flip from their performance against Norway, you know, just an hour after the incident. Seemed really energized to kind of fight for Ericsson and represent that. And also, it was a nice moment in the 10th minute when they all kind of stopped the game and cheered for a bit. But what this game showed is that Belgium are a good team, but they are a world-class contender team when De Bruyne comes on. He came on and completely switched the game. And I think we were a little bit worried about, you know, whether, depending on his health status and also Witzel's to a lesser extent, whether like a midfield two of Tielemans and Dendonker could really, you know, push this team forward. And the answer is probably not. But now De Bruyne is back in the fold, and I think truly truly anything is possible and we'll even give Eden Hazard some credit for grabbing an assist too but this team I think is more fit and and they're they're ready to go I think not only did Belgium show that they are a world-class oh it's 1-1 it's Kai Havertz and it's probably deserved 1-1 Germany have been I think the more aggressive side in this half been creating a bit more assist Corner kick, spotlighted player Robin Gosens with the assist. Caleb Rhodes beaming from ear to ear right now. But it is the Champions League final goal scorer, Kai Havertz, who has brought things level for the Germans here in Munich. So not only do I think De Bruyne makes this team a world-class outfit going forward, but I think you're starting to see the benefits of having all of these guys, Lukaku, De Bruyne, Hazard, the other Hazard, Thorgan all coming together at the peak of their careers at the same time, having played together for so long. I think when De Bruyne came on, you could tell that like he knew exactly what kind of passes to play to Lukaku. Lukaku knew exactly what kind of runs to make in order to get the best out of De Bruyne. When Hazard came on, I think it was very much the same. Like He knew exactly what balls to play into the channels for Lukaku, you know, how to link up with De Bruyne, how to get the best out of this team going forward. And I think if they can get a few more minutes from Hazard. Obviously, I think if De Bruyne can start starting games for them. And it's Kai Havertz and again here. It's Kimmich and it's 2-1 to Germany. Oh my goodness. Damn. But anyways, yeah, Caleb, I think Belgium are going to be a real force at this tournament going forward. I think that the defense is still going to be a question for me. They're looking pretty old at the back. And when they're not looking old, they're looking a little disjointed, uh, especially that Denayer moment. They can be a team that just goes out and scores more goals than the opposition, and that might just be fine for them. Yeah, I also think that, you know, that left wing back, left midfielder position has been a bit of a problem area for them for several years now. And they've gone through, you know, players like Nasir Chadley playing there, Carrasco. And I think Thorgan Hazard has proven to be one of the better fits um, in that position for the team. And I guess the question is, obviously you mentioned like the chemistry that, De Bruyne, Hazard, and Lukaku have. 
do you think that's just something that they've developed naturally over time? Does it go back to their like overlap at Chelsea? Like when do you think that particular connection was like forged? I think this or are they really, just so good that it works? I think it's that. I think it's confidence on the part of Lukaku, who's just brought his game to an entirely different level playing at Inter. I think part of it is like these guys have known each other for so long at this point that they're just familiar with how one another plays and they're familiar with how to get the best out of each other. I think you could definitely see that from, you know, the way that Lukaku kind of changed up his game when De Bruyne came on. Like Lukaku was a bit more comfortable with going wide and, you know, making the runs in from the right. He was a bit more comfortable dropping in deep and letting De Bruyne play a bit more centrally up top. I think, you know, those are the things that come with, you know, playing with the teammate for an especially long period of time. Anyways, yeah, I mean, Nathan, I think you're right. I mean, I don't think we can begrudge Denmark at all for their performance in this game. I actually thought their performance was pretty admirable. Uh, by no means, I think that they were even going to get a result from this game before what happened with Christian Eriksen happened. So just for them to be even competing at this level uh, still at this tournament against a team like Belgium is pretty admirable, in my opinion. Anyways, Nathan, let's move on to a team that I know that you were a little skeptical about in our last podcast. You've not been wanting to jump on the gondola of love in the canals uh, that is the Italian national team. Nathan, has the... Wait, the national team are the canals. Listen, (laughs) it's a river. It's currently a river of love flowing for this Italian national team. In a sea of goals as well. Uh, Nathan, has the Italian national team, I know you were a bit late to jump on this bandwagon, but are you finally on board? Yes, I am all aboard. In fact, I could even be the, um, what's the name of the person who like has the little paddle at the back of the gondola who like does the pushing? The gondolier. gondolier. Oh yeah, the gondolier. In fact, you could call me the gondolier (laughs) of this, um, of this, of this, bandwagon this band gondola italy came up against switzerland the team that i thought might end up winning this group and just absolutely rolled over them even without chiellini for 75 minutes and it was just pure domination like italy had 13 shots uh they held switzerland to just six but none of them were real quality chances they had three shots on target they were just running all over the place. The midfield looks fantastic. Again, uh, Manu Locatelli looks insane. He had tacked on another two goals. Nico Barella looked in form. Um, and again, I think it's also important to note that this team is could have been even better if they had someone like Nico Zaniolo, um, who you know is still only 22 or turning 22 in, in a week and is on his second ACL injury. So... I'm a little scared now about this Italy team because they've found a formation that really works for them and they're going to cruise, cruise in first place um, into this, into the knockout stages from this group. And I'm well and truly aboard and I'm sorry that I doubted them earlier on. And, and I think for me, it's just how complete their performances have been on like in all dimensions of the game. Like there was a great stat going around that, Donnarumma, for instance, now has more clean sheets at the Euros than he has saves. He's now kept a clean sheet in both games. He's only had to make one save, which is insane. And also became as they changed up who the defensive personnel are. As you mentioned, Chiellini went off and Acerbi came on. Um, This game saw Di Lorenzo start in place of Florenzi. So it's not like they're overly reliant on any one player. And then offensively, they're really the team at this tournament that has clicked the most. I mean, two 3-0 victories are huge. I I have been incredibly, incredibly impressed. And I think this team can only improve throughout the tournament and also, you know, in the next few years. Caleb, you make an excellent point about how well-rounded they are, uh, particularly defensively. They have not conceded a goal in competitive football for over a thousand minutes. So they are primed to continue this run into the knockout stage of the tournament. And I think they can do this, as Nathan kind of pointed out, against better opposition. You know, obviously Switzerland are 
a decent team, but I wouldn't say that they're the cream of, you know, European football. And the real test for them will, will be to see how they can enact their style on a team like a Belgium or on a team like a France or, you know, even Portugal or England. So I think that'll be like the real litmus test for this Italy side. But they play such incredible soccer, particularly at a level in which international football is way more, you know, regimented and based off of set pieces and systems. It is so fluid. Nathan, you make an excellent point about Locatelli. I thought, you know, especially since he wasn't even supposed to start at this tournament, this he's got taken the place of uh, Marco Verratti in that midfield three. He has been spectacular, and he's probably right now the player who is going to be like the the household name coming out of this tournament. And I think Caleb and I, you, you talked about that. There's going to be some household names being uh, unearthed in this Italy team, and he is certainly one of those. I think. You know, another one of those players is probably going to be Domenico Berardi when all is said and done. I, thought he, I think he's had a spectacular tournament on the right for Italy so far, giving them so much dimension going forward, along with Insigne, who likes to cut in. It's good to have a player like Berardi who's very comfortable kind of hugging the touchline. I mean, it is Italy. You know, they have a great footballing history, but I think I don't think any of us thought that this Italy team under Mancini is as developed as they currently are displaying right now. Yeah, and I think part of the reason I was so hesitant is because I heard you talk about how, like, un-Italian this team is in terms of the way that they play. And really, ever since 2006, the Italy teams that we've watched have sort of struggled to throw off the chains of Cadenaccio, pun intended, um, and, and I guess evolve a little bit into what is a, a more functional 21st century brand of international soccer. So I think they finally managed to do that now. And obviously it's a point that's been made by plenty of people about how quote unquote un-Italian this style of play is. But with this generation of players that they have right now, it certainly worked for them. And they are maybe shedding the mantle of dark horse as you predicted, Nick. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that's just so great, Nathan, is that they still have some of those Cadenaccio influences in this team. You know, their back two is still Benucci and Chiellini. Like, those are two players with hundreds of caps for this team in between them. And Jorginho is, you know, very much a traditional Italian defensive midfielder. You know, maybe a bit more pass-oriented, but he's still very good at the defensive side of the game. Um, But going forward, they have all of these, you know, very... I think what we would think of as, like, typical, you know, modern attacking footballers. And they play, you know, such a nice blend of these homages to Cadenaccio, particularly on the counterattack, but I think they also are able to really control a game like a Spain or France and really use all of these technical players that are being developed in the, you know, in the Italy camp right now. I think it is, you know, a real credit to Mancini and also a credit to, you know, how the Italian game has evolved in the past five or six years. Yeah, and also just learning the simple lessons from missing qualification to the World Cup. I mean, the big issue there was they left their best wide attacking player, Insignia, on the bench and didn't give him any minutes, which doesn't make any sense. And Mancini has made the sensible choice that, you know, perhaps I should just play my best players, which we talk about all the time, is usually a winning strategy. Like, usually better players tend to win. And you need a really compelling reason to not play those players. And I think Mancini has been like, yeah, I don't have a compelling reason to leave my best attacking player on the bench. So I'm just not going to. Um, and I think that is, you know, a valuable change as well. That's not as related to like Cadenaccio versus new football, no. but just like a very basic type of decision. Anyways, Caleb, do you want to take us a new team that you've been surprised by at this tournament? Yes, I would like to take us to a team that has surprised us. So we spent a lot of time discussing, trying to justify why we thought Netherlands, you know, the biggest named team in their group would likely miss out on the knockout stages. Well, we have been proven wrong after two rather entertaining wins, a comeback victory, not a come, yeah, well, kind of a comeback victory over Ukraine 3-2, and then a pretty workmanlike 
nil victory over Austria that gives them six points and sends them through. We were skeptical of Frank DeBoer. We were skeptical of what formation he was going to use, but this 3-5-2 has worked quite swimmingly, I would say, and has really gotten the best out of the midfield talent of players like Frankie de Jong and Wijnaldum, but also given Depay space to roam. But I think the kind of breakout performer for the Netherlands is 25-year-old Denzel Dumfries, who I think for a long time has been heralded as like a player that should make the jump from the Eredivisie. I think he has to after this tournament with two goals in the first two games. But yeah, I think the quality of this Netherlands team has shown out above the inadequacies of their manager. Um, and I, I'm here for it. I think one of the pro- so on Denzel Dumfries quickly, the problem with Denzel Dumfries is that he's not a very effective defender and he was exposed a lot um, with PSV this past year. But playing in a system like a three at the back enables him to basically go forward and showcase that attacking talent, which I think, um, you know, has looked really, really good. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I still think that this Netherlands team has room for improvement. I'm not sold on Woot Weghorst as the second striker in this system at all. But Gini Wijnaldum, I think, despite not getting on the score sheet against Austria, has looked a lot better. Um, he's given the freedom to create and roam, which is nice. Um, and Memphis Depay again with another goal. And of course, Depay, as of five minutes ago, has officially signed his paperwork and is a new player for Barcelona. So, yeah, I think the Netherlands have been a pleasant surprise. I still feel like they have mistakes in them that, uh, you know, they had a tremendously entertaining first game of this tournament uh, against Ukraine, which saw one of the goals of the tournament, probably not the goal of the tournament because of the halfway line strike from Patrick Schick, but one of the goals of the tournament scored against them. But yeah, Netherlands looking like they're going to be playing some knockout round football. Unfortunately, there is uh, no Mexico to play. um, So there's no worries about a penalty controversy in the offing. You heard it here first. Denzel Dumfries to replace Hakimi at Inter Milan. Ooh, I mean, that would be interesting if Inter Milan had any money. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much in agreement with the both of you. I think I'm leaning more towards what Nathan is saying. I still think that this Dutch team are playing a bit above the sum of their parts right now. I think they have exceeded certainly my expectations, which were kind of bottomed out by a lot. I think De Jong has been incredible at this tournament. You can kind of tell that the uh, the chains are off a little bit. He's able to roam around way more uh, than he's perhaps able to at Barcelona uh, when he's played a bit deeper. I think Wijnaldum has once again been kind of the this revelatory attacking presence, kind of throwing it back to his time at Newcastle um, for this Dutch team. And I think having a player like Delict, I don't, I, I don't want to say like he's lost himself at Juventus. I think that'd be going a little bit too far. But certainly at this tournament, playing with some of his old Ajax teammates, he looks playing in like a more Dutch style, certainly too. I think he looks a little bit more rejuvenated at the back. He looks a little bit more like a, you know, the, the three-dimensional center back that we were all, you know, loving at Ajax when they made that Champions League run into the semifinals in 2019. There's a lot to like about this Dutch team. However, I do think that when they come up against a team that is just, you know, a little bit better overall than them, you know, perhaps can take advantage of the fact that the Netherlands are essentially conceding possession to the other team by playing this three at the back. You know, Austria outpossessed them 55% to 45%. It'll be a test for them when they're really not able to have a lot of the ball playing in this style, what they're able to do. Uh, to respond to that. But I think as of right now, yeah, I don't think I have any complaints, especially considering seeing as they've, they've already sealed a qualification. Can we move on to the club level where I think we are all a little bit uh, amused at Spurs? Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, I think this is probably one of the worst managerial miscarriages of justice. I perhaps have ever seen in my life. Like this is, I mean, this is incredible. I mean, I don't even know how to begin here. It's that crazy. So how how do we even recap this? Honestly, like, how do we, I know we have to talk about this, but like, there have been so many twists and turns 
at this point? Like, I don't even know where to begin. Do we start with Conte? Do we, like, start with Fonseca? Like, do we just talk about Gattuso? Like, Caleb, like, where do you even we begin with the Spurs managerial search? I don't really know. Um, I think it's kind of crazy for a sports team to go from trying to join a breakaway sports league and position itself as one of the premier, you know, football clubs in the world to literally struggling to hire a full-time manager. And I think it speaks to kind of the issue with Spurs brand right now, more generally, which is they think themselves a much bigger club than they tend to perform. And I think a lot of their best players, AKA like Harry Kane, like his situation and the fact that he's going to leave means that I think this is one of the least desirable managerial posts in soccer right now, because the expectation that Levy and the rest of the Spurs ownership and board are going to put on the club is that they finish top four. But I think that is a pretty impossible task. And so I'm not surprised that they're really struggling to find someone. It's getting to the point where they might just need to like appoint Ryan Mason because we're now over two months into this, which is just unacceptable. I said a few weeks ago that I think Spurs are seriously effed um, just due to their squad composition. And that was when they were looking at bringing in Antonio Conte, who is a serial winner and has certain requirements that he knows he needs to meet um, in terms of when he puts together his squad. And I am very concerned. Well, I'm not concerned for Spurs because I could care less. I could not care less about the fate of their team. I'm assuming they trend downwards. But um, I think that Spurs are in a really, really unenviable position right now in which they don't have an owner who has consistently spent big money to replace star players when they leave. They've got a player in Huan Minson who is a few years away from beginning his decline just based on his age. You've got Harry Kane who's angling for a move. And the rest of your squad is underwhelming, I think it's fair to say. Yes, you have players like Lo you have players like Ndombele. They but are they... squad than Arsenal, Nathan. Uh, that's not the, what, the point I'm trying to make. No, I know, They're... but my point is their squad isn't crap. Like, this is, this is, I think, the thing that's kind of being lost in all of this is that this Spurs job, by all accounts, like, should be a pretty desirable job, you know, regardless of whether or not Harry Kane stays on. And I know that's, like, a pretty big point to make, but, like, they're in London... They have a massive new stadium, a huge contingent of supporters. They have, you know, some of the biggest finances in world football. They're one of the highest valued clubs in, in Europe. And for whatever reason, like Daniel Levy, and I guess now by extension, you know, their new sporting director, Fabio Paratici, they're just like, you know, Daniel Levy put out this like statement to the fans a while ago where he's like, we want a manager that fits with the brand of Tottenham Hotspur. And I think, Caleb, you're right, where it's like, we don't really know. Like, they have this, like, really expensively assembled squad from the Pochettino and Mourinho years that, like, they just don't know how they want to proceed with what their playing style is going to be to the point that, like, they're doing, like, the equivalent of that meme where, like, the guy looks back at, like, the girl. You know what I'm talking about? It's, like, first Conte who definitely does not fit, you know, the Spurs brand, but yet they, like, look back at him, they they were attracted by him, and they wanted him, and then he turned them down, and so they're now, like, going to look at Fonseca, who's, you know, a little bit less of an, like, a little bit less of a heralded name, but certainly fits more with, like, the brand of Spurs attacking soccer. But then they were, like, they turned their heads again, they did, like, the meme thing again, and turned their heads and looked at Gattuso, who is so volatile and opposed to, you know, whatever that Spurs brand that Levy was talking about is. And I think now, like, we all think that, like, the Spurs squad is inadequate. And I think there's certainly deficiencies that, like, a new manager will need to address, particularly at the back. But, like, this is a, this, this should not be as big of a problem to find a manager as it's turned out to be. And it's purely because Levy and now Paratici have no idea like where they want to take this at all and are making poor executive decisions that are making all these players look bad by extension and everyone who works the club look bad too. 
I think the yeah. counterpoint to that, though, is that if you subtract Harry Kane from this equation, Spurs scored 68 goals last year, and he was involved in 37 of them. So you're basically having to replace not just the goal output of Harry Kane, who has been one of the top three goal scorers in the league over the last, for each of the last, what, five seasons now, you're also having to replace his creativity. And so I think there's a, there's, I don't know if there's a singular player out there who can fill that void. And I sort of question the ability for them to replace him off the bat. No, I know, but if you're Daniel Levy, you, you don't think about how I how do I how, how do I first hire a new manager and then replace Harry Kane. You think about what manager can I hire to entice Harry Kane to stay. Like that should be the thought process. And you know, going all the way back a few weeks ago to when they were looking at appointing Conte, that is a surefire way, in my opinion, to ensure that Harry Kane stays on at Tottenham. Now you give Conte the resources that he wants. And, you know, you maybe negotiate with him on things a little bit. You certainly let him bring in the coaches that he wants to bring in. I know that the, that was a big point of contention for Daniel Levy. Daniel Levy didn't want Conte to bring in, you know, three or four or however many coaches. This man is a serial winner. And you can really change the mentality of this club and can keep a player like Harry Kane happy because he's being he's in a competitive environment where he could be contending for silverware. And I just think... Yeah. This has been such a mockery of how to run a football club by Daniel Levy that they're not, not only, at, Caleb, as you said, at risk of having to appoint someone like Ryan Mason, but also they're now, I think, fully you know, on the brink of losing Harry Kane because this has been such a disaster. Yeah, well, I think, I think you guys are closing in on what the issue is, which is there's indeterminacy on Harry Kane's front. And so, as you said, Levy wants to hire someone to convince Harry Kane to stay. But all these managers are like, I'm only going to come if Harry Kane doesn't leave. And so you're caught in this like death cycle. What Levy should have done is she sort of sold Harry Kane before the Euros, gotten that money, and then made a big signing. But I think the fact that we're now going to have to wait another few weeks, another few weeks since the transfer market, another few weeks where it will become increasingly difficult to hire someone, he's just put the club in a, in a, in a truly terrible position. But I think it's the Harry Kane is the problem at the end of the day. And I think Levy just needs, should have cashed in right at the end of the season. Right. I think that was the time. I think I would agree with that. But I think the other thing is that I'm not entirely sure. I know this is, might be a little hot, a hot take. I'm not entirely sure Kane actually wants to leave. I think he'll leave if he truly doesn't see, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel for the Spurs team to improve. But I think he wants to be considered like the all-time club legend at Tottenham. And if he can find an avenue to stay there, like he will. But I don't, I don't think Kane wants to leave because I think he likes Spurs. But I think he knows that he has to leave. Yeah, that's, that's because kind of the point he's of 28 years old. He's going to be playing in the conference league next year. And the man wants to be playing Champions League. And the man wants to win a trophy in his career. Yeah. Win, not literally a, a trophy. Any trophy. Like, like, at this point, Harry Kane to Leicester. Like, why not? <laughs> you'll win, like, you'll win the Carabao Cup or something like that. I have a question. I have a like question. That. And this is a massive yeah. if, considering the conversation that we just had about this team. But if England somehow win the Euros... Does his conversation change? Of course, because I think he'd be much more likely to stay if he wins the Euros because he is someone who, I mean, in the sort of good old boy sense, does really embody the England captain, sort of what you would picture when you think of an England captain. He leads from the front. He's going to end up being one of their all-time, if not the all-time leading goal scorer for England. Um, I think that he would be much more content to stay and sort of grind it out, if you will, at Spurs even if that means sacrificing his chance at winning a Champions League or a Premier League, at least for the time being. Because winning the Euros, I think, would mean more not just to him, but really to the vast majority of Spurs fans, right? I think England fans and Spurs fans are both long-suffering. You know, obviously England haven't won an international tournament since, the, since 1966, and Spurs have had their struggles that we've gone over a bunch uh, in major tournaments as well. And I think winning a trophy for England 
alleviates a lot of the pressure that he would feel at the club level too. So I certainly think that uh, it would make him much more likely to stay and it would really, you know, also raise his value a lot, making it harder for Spurs to sell him at the same time. Yeah. There is an additional wrinkle to this thing, which we still don't know who exactly wants Harry Kane and who is going to buy him, but we can get to that another day. But I think to answer your question, yes, if he won the Euros, I agree with Nathan. I think he'd be vastly more likely to stay because I don't think he really wants to go, but he he simply has to. Yep. He has so to. So, Caleb, my question is, how does all of this end? Who do, who, if Daniel Levy finally, you know, gets off the pot and appoints a manager that Parathachi has advised him to appoint, who is this mystery man? You know, I, I feel like I could throw out literally any name and they've probably considered him and he's probably on a spreadsheet. But I feel like they should get someone with Premier League experience. And I think Nuno, I think they should go for Nuno. I know they've kind of already been through him, but just like buy him out of his contract at Wolves, get him in. I think I think he is is a perfectly solid, solid option. I was I'm thinking along those lines, too. I think they end up with Roberto Martinez. Ooh, interesting. I was thinking about I was thinking about Rafa Benitez. No, Benitez is gonna go to Everton, but we're gonna talk about that when that, that is made official because I have thoughts on that. But that is looking like it's very, very close to happening. I think if there is well, anyone who could like whisper into the ear of Harry Kane, it is someone like Rafa Benitez, though. Right. That's sort of I I, I think if your first thought was to go for someone like Conte as a personality, Benitez is sort of um, just as fiery, maybe way, without way the more sort fine. of tactical rigor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's 3-1. Kai Havertz again. Gozens again. It's all Gozens all the time. Uh, there have already been more own goals in this tournament than in any other Euros in the history of the competition. Wow. And we're two weeks Dude, in. Own goal is going to win the golden boot. <laughs> Wild. Anyways. Like that season for Barcelona where like own goal was like the, the fourth leading scorer on the team. No, I think it was our like our second top scorer in the Champions League or something like that. It was it was like Messi own goal. Anyways, it is a Robin Gozens assist, and it is time for us to get a Gozens out of here. Wow, that did not go as well as I thought it was going to go. But anyways, it is time for us to get out of here. It has been a really interesting podcast, and we will come back to you at some point this week with part three of our Euro discussion. I think around when you know match day three of the group stages is coming to a conclusion, and we have a bigger picture of what the round of 16 is going to look like. Potentially, we'll have more updates on the Spurs managerial situation. I doubt they'll have appointed a manager by then. Uh, we will see, and we'll talk about a bunch of other things too. But until then, I've been Nick Abinden. Caleb Reds, Nathan Strauss, and we will see you all next time.